The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. I'm joined by one of my favorite guests we've had on the show, Representative Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts 7th District. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. It's so great to have you back. Zerlina! <laughs> Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. I, I find myself in preparing to talk to you every time, um, you know, going through recent speeches and, and recent conversations you've had in the press, and you you have a way with words. And one of the phrases that stuck with me in preparation for today was something you said recently, which is that we're living in a time where there is a deficit of compassion. And I've been marinating on that phrase. Um because this week we've lived through the horrific attack on the speaker's husband, Paul Pelosi. And in so many ways, that's emblematic, emblematic, excuse me, of this deficit of compassion that you spoke to eloquently. Can you talk a bit about what that means to you and why it's such an issue right now? Well, let me just first contextualize the moment that we're in. You know, I, I first, uh, the attack on Speaker Pelosi's husband, it's horrific. Of course, we're all, um, you know, I'm personally certainly sending prayers up and wishing for a swift, full and restorative recovery uh, for Paul Pelosi. I wish I could say that I was surprised, mm. but I'm not because there's been this growing and emboldened hate speech, which we have example after example of hate speech resulting in hate violence, fueled by far-right extreme insurrectionist conspiracy theories who are emboldened by white supremacy. They're all cut from the same cloth. Mm. And so these threats to our democracy, the very integrity and preservation of it, these threats to uh, every uh, person who calls this, this country home, um, including elected officials, given the rise in political violence, these threats to our democracy are threats to our lives too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think we have to respond with a moral outrage, but also with greater organizing and greater accountability for those who are, are, are purveyors of this, who perpetuate mm -hmm. this hate, this dangerous hate speech and political violence. And that response is voting. 
Mm. Because in fact, the same actors uh, in these draconian, violent acts are the same people who seek to suppress the vote. And so to me, this all comes back to something I speak a lot about, which is the power of us. Yep. And uh, indeed, we the people are powerful. And uh, there are many who recognize that uh, in the way of growing electoral power and strength. Mm -hmm. But I did not think we would see a day uh, where even vehemently disagreeing with a political opponent or a party's ideology would result in what happened to Paul Pelosi, what happened on January 6th, um, and the threats that I see uh, elected officials at every level of government, honestly, especially mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. especially women of color, experiencing, you know, uh, even in my in my home state. So I think we are suffering from a deficit of empathy and and compassion. You mentioned the threats to democracy, and I feel like it's also tied to something else that you say all the time, which is that the people closest to the pain need to be the closest to the power. But the people who are in power, they don't want to give it up. (laughs) They don't want to share it. (laughs) They don't want to allow others um, who have been historically marginalized to be elected and put into those positions of power, even if they, you know, do have a majority of the vote. We had a recent conversation in depth with former Attorney General Eric Holder about gerrymandering and how um, that, you know, dilutes the power of the the people. When when you think about, and I I love talking to you because we can get deep and contextualize, as you said, the moment in history that you're in. When you think about the struggle over the course of you know, generations for civil rights, for human rights. We're now in a moment post-Dobbs where abortion is now illegal, eliminated in most of the country right now. And we're thinking through how we make it true that we need more people who are closest to the pain, closest to the power. How do we actually make that a reality given the backlash and the threats to democracy we continue to see as a response to even folks like you and others who are attempting to try to be close to that power. First, let me just say, Zerlina, how much uh, I appreciate you because how long and how often have we been talking about abortion care Mm -hmm. and abortion care as healthcare? And that's really Mm -hmm. a testament to you and this platform because um, you have uh, been a a journalistic sort of canary in the coal mine even when this was these this was not a headline, right? Uh, you and I have been talking since we were fighting to yes. repeal Hyde. Yep. So um, and, uh, and 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 even then, fighting to pass the Women's Health Protection Act um, because we knew that a day like this could come. Um, you know, history has shown us the algorithm of, of, of history and the work of justice that gains are not guarantees. Um, you don't have our ancestors be emancipated from enslavement to experience the gains of reconstruction, to have it undone by Jim Crow mm. uh, and, and not know that. That's why we have to fight like hell to preserve the gains we've made and to build upon them. You know, abortion care is health care. And the House, the People's House, has twice acted to enshrine the right to abortion care for everyone who calls this country home. So we've done our job. 
And we've been calling on the Senate to do theirs. Uh, and instead, Senate Republicans have um, operated with great contempt and callousness and uh, you know, have denied that justice. This is a matter of healthcare justice. And so now daily, folks are facing insurmountable barriers to abortion care because of the fallout from the Supreme Court's ruling, which is devastating and unprecedented. They are legislating from the bench, overturning uh, what has been a constitutional right for 50 years and overturning the majority will of the American people and rolling back the hands of time while rolling over our bodily autonomy. And Senate Republicans have been actively complicit in denying people the care they need. And so the Senate has to end the Jim Crow filibuster. We have to pass the Women's Health Protection Act. Last month, President Biden committed to signing abortion rights into law if the Democrats expand their majorities in the Senate. So right now I'm squarely focused on fighting, as Senator Warren would say, tooth and nail mm -hmm. uh, to ensure that we deliver on that because bodily autonomy, reproductive freedom, abortion care, health care is on the ballot. You know what that means when we say health care is on the ballot? Mm -hmm. Lives are at risk. Right, right. This is a matter of life and death. So abortion care is health care and our policies and our budgets at all levels of government must reflect that. Um, until we do our, our job and expand uh, these majorities, until uh, we see this swift action by President Biden, until we pass the Women's Health Protection Act in the Senate, I'm gonna keep working. I was in Michigan last week or two weeks mm -hmm. ago uh, around their ballot question. Uh, and so just whatever lever that is available to me to pull, uh, I'm going to, because this abortion care is a, is a matter of health care, which is a matter of life and death. You mentioned the phrase bodily, bodily autonomy. And one of the things I think a lot about in, in a moment like this is, you know, for me, there's sort of a, a value set. It's, I believe in human dignity. I believe in bodily autonomy. Um, and that is sort of the central value that I, I start from there. <laughs> and then, you know, there are nuances and policy debates to be had. Um, but I believe in these things. And I feel like we're in a moment in American democracy where we're in a pandemic. There's a war in Ukraine with, you know, nuclear implications. We're, we're, there's so many existential threats, climate change and the devastation we just saw in Florida. Um, and I, I can't help but, but wonder if we've lost the central value set that I mentioned, which is this idea that you said bodily autonomy and really just human dignity and allowing that um, to lead us uh, to to find the policy solutions for, for many of these issues. Okay, Julian, let me say two things about that. The first is uh, I'm an Aquarius and so I have an, <laughs> and so I have an optimism bias, okay? Um, when you see the victories of uh, the uh, abortion ballot question in Kansas, mm -hmm. uh, they understood that it was a matter of freedom Right. Yep. So I have an optimism uh, bias uh, here, and I do believe that this will uh, motivate people to the polls. It, do I uh, am I uh, distraught, sickened? Is it demoralizing um, that this happened in the first place? Absolutely. But again, I do believe it is consistent with the algorithm and the work of, of justice which is why it is important that we continue to movement build because it is the only sustainable way to effectuate change. 
to hold the line, uh, to advance progress is through movement. Um, I also wanna say that what we see the attacks with uh, bodily autonomy and reproductive freedom are the very same draconian attacks against the LGBTQ community are the very same attacks that are taking place in red states regarding voter suppression. So if you were to sort of look at these concentric circles, uh, like all oppression, like all marginalization, Zerlina, it is legislated, it is coordinated, um, it is precise. And so it is not a coincidence that the same states that are triggered law states that do not affirm abortion as health care also have advanced uh, the most discriminatory uh, anti-LGBTQ laws mm -hmm. and also are active players in the work of legislated voter suppression. And so what is our response to that? Our response to that is mobilization. Our response mm -hmm. to that is movement building. Our response to that is we're at an unprecedented moment. We must now meet that with unprecedented organizing, legislating, and investment. I really do think that we're on the precipice of a great shift. Mm. And I, I, I do. Mm -hmm. I believe in Reverend Barber's words that this is a third reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that um, uh, it is going to be, it, it's right now we're in, it's just, it's painful because um, there's a shift occurring. And that shift is in response to people's fear that they are losing something. I think I shared this with you before, Zerlina, that um, I had been in a think tank, a fellow, a Rodell fellow through the Aspen <laughs> Institute. And one of the, the greatest takeaways and lessons I had when I was asking, why are people so resistant to change? And their response was people, the professor said, people are not resistant to change, Ayana. They're resistant to loss. So every time I met with a violent or vitriolic uh, response or reaction, I, I pause and I ask myself, what does this person believe they're losing? Mm. And so whether you're talking about political violence, whether you're talking about policy violence, you know, all of it uh, in this moment, I think is emblematic of a constituency of people who believe they are losing. Right. Right. It's it's so important to to talk about these things in in the middle of early voting. I I love um, talking to you, and I I know everyone at home is going to love hearing this because I feel like I hear your optimism, and I think that every single you know lifelong po um, policy person or activist that optimism is such an important piece. I was just talking to Soledad O'Brien about the Rosa Parks documentary. And that was also a theme of, of understanding that the struggle continues beyond, um, you know, maybe even your lifetime. And I want folks to, to get excited about the potential for what's to come. So the midterm elections were in them, but there, there are additional things that the Biden administration and the Democratic Congress, if they maintain majorities, um, can do to continue the Biden agenda. And I want to actually talk about that before um, we have to wrap. Um, we just canceled student debt. <laughs> that is monumental. But talk about some of these other pieces of the agenda that didn't get done yet, um, but that are still possible. Um, and that folks shouldn't lose sight of the, what you keep going back to, which is that, that we're at a precipice of 
you know, some bad things or some, some extremely um, great things that we've, yes. we've long fought for. Yes. And Zerlina, I can't have a passing reference to student debt relief because we work too hard on that. I have to just say, <laughs> this is a testament to the power of us, the yes. power of the pen, the power of movement. We took an issue that people said was marginal and fringe, that the president didn't have an authority to take on, that people said would be progressive and impact. And for two years, we worked to build a coalition of yes, borrowers, civil rights organizations, union families, labor union presidents, police. You have until December 31st, 2023 to sign up for this life-changing relief. Over 22 million people have already filled out this application. Please go to studentaid.gov slash debt relief. Zerlina, this yes. is sort of transformative policy. We have to advance policies that meet the scale and scope and urgency of the moment. Right. This was a nearly $2 trillion crisis, creating great hardship for people from every single walk of life. Democrats win when we deliver. This is, I thank the Biden-Harris administration for heeding the calls and being responsive to this movement, the very movement that made this democratic majority possible. And so now we have to continue with that mandate and make sure that we are addressing universal childcare and pre-K, robust investments in housing, uh, home and community-based services for the disabled and the elderly, paid leave, um, I'm doing a lot of work, and I know you care about this, Zerlina, on COVID long haulers. Yes. Long COVID and its impact on families and our workforce. We have got to make these investments in care infrastructure, in a care economy, because at some point, we are going to need to care for someone or need to be cared for. And so um, those fights must continue because those issues are consequential. And they are um, transcendent, whether you live in an urban, rural, or suburban community, whatever your socioeconomic status, certainly uh, the most marginalized bear the burden that much more. But, uh, you know, we're encouraged by the progress of the Inflation Reduction Act and those investments in, in climate and the work of our frontline communities and also lowering the cost of prescription drugs. But our work is not done when it comes to housing, childcare, paid leave, uh, and these other uh, really essential, uh, consequential matters. It's so exciting to hear the list of things that are top of mind for House Democrats. I mean, what are what are some of the issues that are animating the voters in your district? I've been talking to so many of the, the Democrats running in these really tight House races. In your particular district, there are specific issues um, inflation, gas prices, and the prices on essential items, I think, are universal. But what are some of the other issues that you've been talking to voters about as you travel around your district? Zelina, I promise you, this is a top issue for people, and it is really student debt. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I, I believe it. Student debt. I mean, it's 800,000 uh, people in the Commonwealth are eligible for this. Studentaid.gov slash debt relief, please go. A hundred thousand people uh, in my district alone. So mm. talk to me about student debt uh, and how encouraged and how much more optimistic about the future they are. And at a time where they're still feeling the pinch of inflation and rising costs and, and the impacts of this pandemic-induced recession, um, it, it comes at the perfect time. Housing and transportation. And, um, you know, I think housing, and this is why I'm so grateful to serve in the Financial Services Committee under the leadership of our historic chair, uh, Maxine Waters, um, housing is at the intersect of everything. 
It's how we meet our climate and sustainability goals. It's how we meet our economic justice goals. It's how we reach our health uh, outcome goals because we know that housing is a determinant of health. It's, it's how we close the racial wealth gap. Mm -hmm. uh, so housing, affordable housing, housing rather housing that is affordable um and um home ownership you know these are all big priorities of mine i have a number of legislative uh avenues with which i'm going to get at that i hope i can come back and talk about that some other time transportation um historically on the federal level mm -hmm. investments in transportation have been focused on highways roads and bridges but not included things like housing right expand that definition of infrastructure but also public transit and um, you know, that is also an issue that I hear a lot about and the need for it to be um, affordable, rapid, reliable, mm -hmm. accessible. Um, and uh, that's why I'm very proud to be co-founder of the Future of Transportation Caucus and also uh, co-sponsor of the Freedom to Move Act. It's as literal as that. Everyone deserves the freedom to move. Personally, I think that we should be um, investing uh, in public transit federally as the public good that it is. I think it should be, it should be free. But um, as I move throughout my district, I would say those are the issues top of mind for people right now um, would be um, the implementation of student debt, which I'm continuing to conduct in my oversight mm -hmm. capacity and as someone who fought really hard to get that across the finish line, um, housing and, and transportation. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, it is always a privilege to talk to you. Um, you're one of the most thoughtful people, not even members of Congress, people that I speak to. Um, and it, it's just always um, so wonderful. And I think that our audience will get so much and um, feel inspired to become organizers and engaged in protecting American democracy. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley from Massachusetts, 7th District. Thank you so much for being here today. It's always thank so great to have you, you on. Selena. Appreciate you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday. 